Let's welcome Professor Tava Olsen. Thank you. Thank you for all making the time to hear about supply chains, you know, woo, supply chains. And, and in fact, I have a supply chain joke to start. Uh, so why did the supply chain manager wake up in the middle of the night in a cold sweat? Because he was having another logistical nightmare. <laughs> Okay, that's, that's probably the highlight of the talk, so that should set expectations. Um, <laughs> I'm Tava, um, Professor of Operations and Supply Chain, but I'm also the Director for the Centre for Supply Chain Management at the University of Auckland. Centre of Supply Chain Management, if after this talk you think, whoa, I really love supply chains, or you know, maybe you already love supply chains, I know there's some fans here. Um, yeah, our our centre membership list is free to join, so just Google Supply Chain Centre Auckland University, you'll find us, sign up, you'll get newsletters, you'll get invited to supply chain events. Um, yay! <laughs> so yeah, so I was a little nervous about this talk because when I talk about supply chains, which I do quite a lot, I always have PowerPoints, because if you're talking about supply chains, you want that picture, right? You want to be able to see. I want to, I want to give you a visual of here's the supply chain, and we're not going to have that. So um, I'll do my best. Uh, I did think briefly about perhaps having some audience participation, because I have a little cartoon that a colleague gave me in, on the, my uh, office wall that has basically uh, a whole group of team building exercise. They look like they're doing the, con the, the conga. And, um, basically, and the caption says, to understand the supply chain, you have to be the supply chain. But don't worry, I'm not going to make you get up and be the supply chain. <laughs> I'll try and paint a visual picture instead. Um, so yeah, so, so let me start by just explaining what we mean when we, when we say supply chain. So uh, if we think in terms of agriculture, we often talk about the supply chain being paddock to plate, or farm to fork, or grass to glass. You know, those are, those are a lot of the sort of analogies that, that we use in supply chain. If we, and, and most of the time we're making stuff when we talk about a supply chain. So most of the time when we're talking supply chain, we are talking about the goods that we purchase or the food that we purchase. Sometimes we use supply chain talking about services, but usually we talk more value chain. So most of my talk I'll be thinking about goods supply chain. And I think as an example, it makes sense to think about the automobile supply chain because that's really one of the most complex supply chains that's out there. I had a bit of a, maybe it's an overstatement to say life-changing, but I had a little aha moment when I was visiting uh, a manufacturing, auto manufacturing plant, uh, or supplier to the plant in the US, and there was a person sitting there just putting the springs in the demister button. Now this is of course pre-digital things, but yeah, I mean, what a job. You just, every, you know, every few seconds you're putting a spring into the button because somebody has to put that spring into that button that actually goes, you know, that you press when you need to demist the, or defrost the, uh, the windscreen, windshield. I lived in the US for 20 years. I grew up in Auckland, but I, <laughs> sometimes when I'm trying to think, is it windshield, windscreen? I don't actually remember, so <laughs> I'm sure you know what I mean, though. Uh, so 
Yeah, so, so if we think about the, the supply chain for cars, it starts with the mining of the metal, right? And then you're going to smelt it into steel, and that's for the steel parts. The plastic has a whole different process. And so you've got the steel smelter that's making coils of steel, these big, giant things that are basically like a toilet paper roll, but of steel and much bigger. And then that gets fed into a machine that makes what are called blanks, so just sheets, square sheets or rectangular sheets of metal. And then that gets fed into what's called a stamping machine that has a die that's shaped like the car uh, bonnet or the door or whatever part you're making. And this big machine takes this blank of metal and goes clunk and turns it into the shape that you want. And then maybe that metal's treated then, maybe it's treated earlier. I've got a really cool video that if I had visual aids that actually shows the chassis of a car all being dunked into a treatment, you know, anti-rust treatment, etc. Um, so yes, yeah, so all those parts have to get put together. And all those subcomponents come in. So you have your engine, right? So somebody has to actually build the engine before it gets lowered into the car. Someone else has to build the seat subassembly. Well, what goes into a seat? Well, there's the fabric that goes onto the seat. And the fabric, of course, you know, comes from, is it leather, is it cotton, is it nylon, whatever it is. There's that entire supply chain. So you've got thousands and thousands of, of suppliers that are involved in, in making that car. So it was Henry Ford who basically invented the assembly line. So how did they make cars before the assembly line? Well, it was much more what would be called a job shop, but basically you kind of have this craft uh, environment where the car's there and you're building it. And there's still a few high-spec cars built that way, but the assembly line was every person had their particular task and we still use assembly lines today. But, but the other thing that Henry Ford did that we don't do today is he had a completely vertically integrated supply chain. So he owned the rubber plantations that went into making the cars, that went into making the tires that go onto the cars. We don't do that today. Usually the theory of the firm kind of says people should do what they're good at. We think about firms having competitive advantages. So, you know, car companies do not own rubber plantations these days. Probably Henry Ford had to because it was on such a scale that in order to guarantee the supply, he probably had to. But these days we can buy the supply. Um, and what that means is your supply chain, not only is it made up of all these different suppliers, but they're not owned by any one company, right? So one of the huge challenges in supply chain management is the visibility, understanding who your suppliers are, what are they doing, and of course one of the challenges, uh, particularly for things like clothing supply chains, are ethical supply chains, making sure that uh, the people who are involved in the supply chain are not being exploited and Another little promo, I'm not part of it, but Auckland has a centre for uh, modern prevention of modern slavery because there is actually a fair bit of unethical practices and it's really, really hard for companies to have the visibility to tell that that's what's going on in their supply chain. So there's visibility challenges, 
But there's also challenges around uh, incentives <laughs> because each of the parties in that supply chain want to do what's actually best for their own company. Of course they do, right? It's a business, it's a business uh, endeavor. So, of course, they're trying to do what's right for their company. May not be what their supplier would want, may not know be what their customer, if that's another industry, would want. So one of the other challenges and one of the things we study when we study supply chain management is aligning those incentives in the supply chain for how are we actually going to think about how we set up our contracts, for example, how do we actually make sure that everybody in that supply chain is actually trying to do things in the most effective manner, efficient and effective manner. Um, so, because people may not be working together, may not be aligned, and because you may not have visibility, and because you may have quite a few different parties in the supply chain, lead times between all of them. One of the very first concepts we teach in supply chain management is the bullwhip effect. Um, so we teach it called what's called the beer game. So we're in the ideal setting here, except we're not actually going to play the beer game because it takes an hour and it doesn't actually involve beer, sadly. Um, when Fonterra plays it with their employees, they call it the milk game. I've seen some people call it the lemonade game. The game is the same. It's basically you're simulating a supply chain as a team and you have uh, the, the producer who's going to the wholesaler, who's going to the distributor, who's going to the retailer. And the idea is to illustrate this bullwhip effect that says that the variability gets more uh, as you get further away from the customer. So I do have a colleague in the US who actually owns a bullwhip that he uses to illustrate this effect. Um, I've never invested in that prop because showing up to class with a whip just doesn't quite seem like the right look. Um, but I did bring along a fairy, fairy whip today. Can you tell I have daughters? <laughs> so here's my one prop. Here's my fairy whip. So when we whip, the very end of it, you can almost hear it, right? The crack. That, that end is going so much faster with such bigger oscillations than the beginning. So the bullwhip effect in the, in the supply chain just says that little fluctuations at the consumer get bigger as they go to the wholesalers and the distributors, and even bigger yet when they go to the manufacturers. And that's part of what goes wrong in supply chain management. Supply chains work best when there's no variability. If everything is just constant, flowing like water, lean, we have well-functioning, efficient, low-cost supply chains. But when you get that variability going, then we can get a big effect going. And did we have something like that? Well, yes, we had really badly performing supply chains that in, during the pan, well, we're still in the pandemic, but during the beginning of the pandemic. So for example, I do want to talk about the toilet paper supply chain because that's the one that 
made a lot of the news stories. And in New Zealand, it wasn't too bad. But in the US, there was, it was really terrible in terms of how, how much out of stock. But let's think about why. So toilet paper is bulky. It's not a high margin product, right? And usually, the demand is really predictable. Usually that demand is lovely and stable. It doesn't have a whole lot of seasonality. I mean, maybe a little bit in winter, but we won't get into that, right? <laughs> but it's pretty predictable, stable demand on a low-margin product. So traditionally, those supply chains are run extremely lean. Not much inventory at any particular point. It's all turning over high volume, just going all the way from, from the pulp turning it into toilet paper all the way to the supermarket. But, if, but we had, you know, we had people buying a bit more because they were worried, a little bit of fluctuation there. So, I mean, the stockpiling wasn't huge, but small fluctuations turned into huge outages in terms of it. So it drained that whole supply chain. And in New Zealand, it was, we didn't encounter too many issues, partly because, you know, the way stockpiling works is once one people see it's out of stock, everybody starts to panic. But also, our toilet paper supply chain, we do actually manufacture that here, right? We have wood pulp. So the supply chain is short. Short supply chains do much better with uncertainty than long, lean supply chains. Right, so uh, for us, we were okay. We ran out of flour, if you remember. But what's interesting about the flour supply chain is we didn't actually run out of flour. We ran out of bags to put the flour in. <laughs> we had plenty of flour. But you know, what happened? The, the bakeries were not operating. People were baking at home, so they were buying supermarket-sized bags of flour instead of commercial-sized bags of flour. And pretty quickly, the personal-sized bags ran out. Now, obviously, they can make more, but the printer who prints the bags, uh, you know, <laughs> they have a whole backlog of orders. They, you know, there's a lead time there. You have to set it up to actually do the printing. So eventually, they recovered. But that's why you also saw in Pack and Save some of those big bags, because they had plenty of those big bags, they just didn't have the consumer-sized bags. So again, you know, when we talk supply chains, it's all those little pieces. And for the flour, it was the bags, not the actual, not the actual flour. Um, so yeah, so if we think about, you know, what what sort of went wrong in terms of uh, the, the pandemic. We have these fluctuations that lead into the bullwhip effect, and we had them both on the demand and the supply chain. So if we think through the demand changes that we saw, we saw some decreases in demand, right? So now, you know, during the lockdown, there were some things that weren't getting bought. We saw a very big decrease in some services, and in fact, there's a graph that shows that the goods supply chains in New Zealand had a little bit of a dip, and now have fully recovered. Services, way down, and still quite far away from recovering. So what are services? Services is tourism, 
right? There haven't been any cruise ships that I've noticed outside in the, in the Auckland port recently. Every cruise ship brings about a million dollars of revenue to downtown Auckland. Um, so that's a million dollars not going into this calculation on, on the service supply chain. And of course, education. Uh, at the university, we are very much missing our international students. Some of them have kindly stuck with us in China doing remote education, um, but many of them are not there. So New Zealand, in terms of services, is still well down in terms of um, revenue. Um, so yeah, so that, there was those demand changes. Um, and then internationally, particularly nice to have things like lobster were not being bought because you're not going to restaurants. It's not something you tend to consume at home. So there were sort of these... Uh, fluctuations and sort of esoteric things. But there was also increases. So again, it's a sort of like, you know, some, some things were down, some things are up. If you're a supply chain manager, how are you actually going to think about this? Um, so in terms of increases, there was the, the stockpiling that was going on. I mean, again, everyone just needs to increase by 10%, and that has a massive effect on a supply chain that's used to predictable demand. Um, and then perceptions of safety also led to some increases, you know, um, it sort of makes you feel, so it's, it's related to stockpiling, but also more it's, it's, it's nesting, right? It makes you feel safe. Um, and then online ordering, right? If people are not going to the movies, they're spending money ordering stuff online. Um, so there was definitely an increase in some of that consumption. More in the US than New Zealand, but definitely some in New Zealand. Um, and then finally, some of the demand can increase if supply goes away somewhere else, so your customer orders from you rather than the place that's not able to supply. Um, and then uh, home versus workplace consumption. When I talked about flour, I talked about the toilet paper supply chain, but I didn't mention the fact that in the US, commercial toilet paper is actually very different to what you would use in your home. It comes in these sort of about this large, and it's not really as nice in terms of ply. I don't know if other people, I'm sure there's people here who, like me, remember that hideous plasticky stuff we used to get in schools in New Zealand. Yeah, a little bit of laughter there. I think it went away a long a while ago. I hope it did. Um, it's not as bad as that. Don't worry. But it is, you know, it is a very different um, ply, which means you can't readily substitute. Which was the other issue that they had in their toilet paper supply chain was they had the wrong type of actual paper because you can't then even if it's even if you had the packaging, how are you going to actually package it uh, for? domestic use, it's challenging. It's better to just make the stuff you need, but of course all of that is changeovers, time to, time to actually process. So that's on the demand side. On the supply side, we also saw disruptions and variability and things that supply chains don't, uh, don't cope well with. We saw the, the suppliers not working because COVID had shut down plants, so in New Zealand, it, they were fairly generous, and we were fairly generous in terms of who would be classed as essential. But there were manufacturing plants that couldn't count themselves as essential, so they had nothing to do with food supply chains, for example, food or farming. 
and they were shut down during, during the, uh, the lockdowns. Um, there were many, many transportation disruptions, and again, a lot of that was, was lockdowns, people not working. Even when people are working, the social distancing leads to a decrease in capacity. So you can actually, you know, not work as fast because now you're actually keeping a distance between, between people. Um, and then there were people who just didn't want to come to work because of the pandemic, which is very understandable. So there's been all these, you know, that, and more decrease in every link of the capacity of the, of the supply chain. Um, and then the reduced air capacity, and we're still not back to normal in terms of flights. We're a lot better than we were. But when you fly on a plane, your ticket is being partially subsidized by the goods that are in the hull of that plane that are being flown. And that was a massive change in supply chains, was when the planes weren't flying, and therefore all the goods in the, in the cargo holes were not flying. There was a bit of converting planes over to being just cargo flights, that happened, um, but it nowhere came near to replacing the, the capacity that was lost. And I don't know if you noticed, but my in-laws live in the US, and there was a period of a few months there that they couldn't actually mail a letter to New Zealand. The, the US Postal Service decided that there's just so little capacity in this network, we're not even going to bother trying to send mail to, the US, to New Zealand or Australia, and I don't know who else was on the list of we're not sending to. Um, in theory, they returned those to senders. Actually, I can tell you they just stuck them somewhere because we ended up with some Christmas cards and, and letters that you know, took about six months to get here, but they did actually get here eventually, so you know, <laughs> that was nice. Um, and then, yeah, so then, and then there was all the port congestion, right? So that was particularly uh, in December, January, beginning of the year. LA port had more ships on delay than they've ever, over 100 ships than they've, they've ever had before. And that was related to the pandemic, but it was caused by a shortage of truck drivers. So they couldn't remove the containers from the, from the wharf or the port, and therefore they couldn't unload containers into the port. So they just ended up with this big backlog uh, caused by a lack of truck drivers, and the lack of truck drivers was something that's actually been building for a while in the US. Truck driver fleet, you know, people are aging, but the pandemic just made that worse. And, you know, we should remember that the US has lost a million people to COVID. I mean, yes, they have 330 million or however many they have, but, um, you know, and a lot of those were retired people, but there's still a significant portion of the workforce that they, they lost. And, you know, small differences can magnify when we're talking about capacity and supply chains. So, you know, that's, that's another effect that just adds in to the compounding of issues. I don't think we can uh, blame the ever given on the pandemic, as far as I know, but that didn't help supply chains last year when the ever given ship got stuck in the Suez Canal. Um, so all of these variability pieces just add up to these lumps and bumps in your supply chain that mean that you have gaps in supply. And then if the bulwark effect occurs, you might actually end up with an oversupply at some point. So there are some predictions Sticky in the US that you're going to actually see excess inventories and large write-offs because of going the other direction in, the, in that bullwhip effect. Um, 
yeah, so, um, so what can we do about it? Uh, a lot of it comes down to sort of rethinking our supply chain strategy. So that's what I want to talk about uh, now a little bit, is, is supply chain strategy. And the theory that is sort of at the heart of much of supply chain strategy is there are basically two types of supply chain. Obviously, it's actually a continuum. There's not a distinct two types. But we think about physically efficient supply chains that are all about minimizing cost. So if you've got a bag of milk powder from Fonterra that you're trying to export, you want a physically efficient supply chain. You want large batch sizes, you want cost kept to a minimum, full truckloads. You know, it might take a bit longer to make sure that you've got your large batch and your full truckload, but that's okay, it's milk powder, not a lot happening to it. You just go for maximizing that physical efficiency. But if you're Fisher and Paykel Healthcare and you're producing high-tech devices that are actually particularly useful for breathing apparatus in a, in a pandemic, uh, then you want a responsive supply chain. It really, you know, keeping those costs down is far less important because you've got very large margins. You want to be able to meet customer demand where it is, when it is, as soon as it is. You want to be able to roll out your new products. Um, so, generally, the way we think about this is the type of supply chain that we design should match with the type of product that we're actually producing. So, if we're producing a uh, low-margin commodity-type product, then we want a physically efficient supply chain. If we're producing a high-margin innovative product, maybe a fashion good, then we want a responsive supply chain where we no longer measure it in terms of cost, but we measure it in terms of service level and lead time and all the things that feed into responsiveness. And New Zealand, I think, has spent a bit too long focused on those efficient supply chains and not enough thinking about how are we going to get smart about responsive supply chains. It's quite difficult sitting where we are and given shipping lead times to have responsive supply chains. But, you know, I actually have a lot of time for Fisher & Paykel Healthcare. You know, they think a lot about their supply chain strategies, so they have manufacturing in Auckland, but they also have manufacturing in Mexico, so that they're actually close to the North American market. Mexico also has some of the lower um, workforce costs, not as low as going elsewhere, but, you know, being in that North, that North American market is actually quite valuable for them. Um, and so, yeah, so that's the way they have developed a responsive supply chain. And sometimes they do air freight their goods. I mean, they're pretty light, like those little face mask things that you have on the breathing apparatus. Those are pretty light. It's not terribly inefficient to put it in the plane. And they will sometimes. I mean, they prefer to put it in a shipping container coming from Auckland. But to be responsive, they'll put it in the hull of a plane, get it there immediately. They can do that. If we think about other sort of products that we could be good at being responsive, anything that doesn't have the tyranny of distance, right? So IT, great, right? There's no, there's no need to put it in a container or put it on a plane. We can be really good at that. What, we, what we're going to be less good at is adding value to logs. So, you know, there's always a lot of media stories 
about hand wringing with the logs that we export. And I, you know, I get it. I've, I've seen the pile of logs on Tauranga Port, and it's just like, what are we doing? But on the other hand, you know, start thinking about what are we going to do with them? Anything you do with a log of wood, it's going to be high labor content. It's going to be bulky. It's going to be likely to damage in shipping. And if it's made with pine, it may not be that high value, right? So how are we going to compete in those products where we have to add value? Because if there's still commodity products where we're, you know, products that are primarily competing on cost, we're not going to be able to do that. And if they're quite innovative niche products, how are we going to have a responsive supply chain from down here with something that bulky? I mean, obviously, there are niche wood products that we can be great with. But in general, I'm actually okay with us farming trees and sending them offshore so long as we do it ethically and safely, which is a big so long as, right? But yeah, if we can farm trees ethically and safety, I'm actually okay with it because I think it makes sense from a supply chain strategy. Would I rather we were doing high-tech things, IT, Rocket Lab is great, you know, all those things? Sure, that stuff's great and we should be doing more of it. But I don't have a big issue with us, with us farming trees, personally. Um, so yeah, so that's, that sort of conversation leads us a bit into a conversation around supply chain resilience. So the government has just put, up a, put out a supply chain strategy paper. It's a supply chain issues paper. You can find it online. It's, it's to come up with a national supply chain and freight strategy. Um, and if you read it, it's actually an excellent read of the issues and the current state. So they've done a really good job of going through what's the current state of New Zealand's freight network supply chains. That's all good. But then they say, you know, here's what New Zealand's supply chain strategy should be. Here's what our supply chain strategy should look like. As if there's one supply chain strategy. Well, I've just spent the last 10 minutes telling you, actually, you need efficient supply chains for, for low-margin commodity products, and you need responsive supply chains for your high-tech. So we don't have one strategy. And if you go through their strategy, what they, they want a variety of things, but two things they want are productivity, yay, and resilience, yay. But usually... You don't get both of those at once. How do you get resilience? Well, you do things like you keep buffers of inventory. Well, that makes you less productive because you're less lean, you're, you know, you're carrying all this extra inventory. So there's a trade-off there between productivity and resilience that we need to have a very good conversation about, I think, as a country. And I don't think the current issues document does that. I did provide some feedback, so they may, they may think about it, but it's not an easy decision, right? I mean, so, so what I found a little amusing was just in time when I first graduated was what we called lean, and then just in time got a bad name, so we called it lean. Now, that's an oversimplification. There may well be some lean people here that will tell me I'm being mean, um, but okay, so, so then we call it lean, but now that it's not doing so well, we're calling it just-in-time again, and there's a lot of talking about, you know, are we going to move from just-in-time to just-in-case, well, you know, just-in-case costs money, so who's actually going to pay for that, so should, yes, we could move to more just-in-case, 
but I don't think we can expect our businesses to invest in more just in case when it doesn't make sense from a financial standpoint, because keeping things lean and just in time, so long as you don't have that variability, is actually a really good way to run your supply chain. The problem is when things go wrong, and we see it's a really bad way to run your supply chain. So then as a commercial enterprise, you have to weigh up how often are these disruptions going to happen and how much money will I lose versus how much money will I lose sitting in inventory. And of course, inventory isn't the only way to buffer. right? So when we teach this stuff, we, we talk about buffer or suffer, but buffers can be inventory. Buffers can also be capacity. Am I actually going to keep spare capacity so that I can react to changes in demand, changes in supply? I've got that extra capacity to be able to react to it. Or buffers can be time. And you know that's quite common because we, what we do is we tell the customer that they're actually going to wait. So if you've ordered anything online recently from offshore, you'll notice that those lead times have gone way up. That's a time buffer. It's not an inventory buffer. They're not holding more in Auckland. Right? It's not a capacity buffer. They're not holding spare capacity just for you. Right? It's, it's a time buffer. But generally, buffering is the way we deal with, with small fluctuations in demand. Um, big fluctuations are what we're less good at coping with, and that's when we really need to do our contingency planning. So uh, the Supply Chain Centre actually had a talk recently by... Um, Ryan Peterson, who's the founder of Flexport, which is a um, freight forwarding company. So they basically sell air, is one way to think about it. But anyway, they're the ones that are the middle person to actually get your goods on a ship, but they don't own the ships, they don't own the containers. They, they arrange all the paperwork and the logistics. So anyway, the talk's up there on our website, should you wish to listen to it, it's great. But one of the things they're doing now, as a very heavily in the supply chain company, is their risk register. So uh, they have a list of about 40 different risks, which Ryan said he put 30 of them on the list. Um, and for every single one of those, they have a one-page plan for what they're going to do about this particular risk. And I think that is one thing that the pandemic has changed in terms of how we think about our operations and our supply chain, is we always talked about risk, but I don't think we really got real about it. And I think there are still people in, in somewhat denial. Um, and I think companies do need to actually get very uh, specific about what are the risks. Um, and, you know, my... Uh, drum that I'm currently beating is there's a role for government in this, right? There's a role for government to think through the resilience side of our supply chains. Because as I mentioned, I don't think we can expect commercial industry to uh, enterprises to just hold stuff for the good of the nation. So I don't, I really, really, really hope war is not going to come. <laughs> and you know the news stories with Taiwan, da da da. What if our borders closed? What would we run out of quickly? Can we please take a careful look and say, what would we run out of and therefore we should be holding stocks of onshore versus, you know, so I can tell you one thing we'd run out of very quickly is coffee. We don't grow coffee beans in New Zealand. <laughs> so we would run out of coffee very, very quickly. <laughs> but, you know, 
if it's war, I think we can cope without coffee, right? I mean, you know, it's, it's challenging, it's got to be tough, we'll have to knuckle down, but we can cope without sh coffee. Fuel? Now we're starting to get problematic, right? We've just closed Marsden Point refinery, you know. <laughs> what are we going to have for, when, how, how much petrol do we actually have in the country? Yes, we'll be able to ration, because again, we're in that that war footing. And again, I'm not predicting war. I'm not standing up being Cassandra and saying this is definitely going to happen. But if we're doing supply chain risks, we have to think about what is possible. And one of the things that's possible would be a border closure. So let's make sure we actually think through uh, what would we run out of and therefore what do we you know, even if we just keep it with that buffer of spare capacity, even if we just keep Marsden Point, and there was a, I forget who wrote the news article recently suggesting this, you know, even if we just keep it in a state where we could switch it on again as needed, there's obviously issues with that, um, you know, that's, <laughs> at least we have a plan. Um, so I was actually making this presentation, well, not this presentation, but a presentation to the freight uh, Futures Conference, um, and I made this little plea on can we please make sure that we're government is planning for this. And I did actually have someone from one of the ministries come up to me afterwards and say, there are conversations starting to happen about this. So that made me really happy. Um, I'm very glad there are conversations about this starting to happen. Um, because, yeah, I mean, it's it's we need to think through, I think... The other thing I would lobby for is to do those extra 21 kilometres of rail to get to Northport so that we now have more resilience in terms of Northport, Auckland, Tauranga, so that if there was, again, I, I'm not Cassandra, I promise, but if there was a volcano that cut off the uh, top of the, you know, that cut off Auckland from the top, the top from the bottom, well, you'd kind of want Northport there and you'd ideally want it to have a bit of a rail line and well connected. So... I do think that the pandemic was a bit of a wake-up call in terms of have we thought enough about supply chain resilience and, you know, let's think about it in other contexts. So think about it in terms of natural disasters, in terms of war, other pandemics, and let's, let's actually, you know, not overreact, but at least have plans for it and sort of make the compromises that, yeah, we're going to have to do without our, do without our coffee. Um, so, I do think, you know, there's a lot of interesting things to think about in terms of supply chain. You could say that supply chain management is a fulfilling career. <laughs> See, there's a joke to tail in, the really bad joke that was at the, at the beginning. Um, and that's, you know, it's just to give a little bit of a plug, that's what we teach at the University of Auckland, so we have... Uh, non-degree exec programs that, that teach supply chain management. We have masters, we have bachelors, so we do have graduates coming out of our BCom uh, that, that have studied operations and supply chain management. I mean, if you want a doctor or a lawyer or an engineer, you hire people with those degrees, I think we could actually do a lot better in terms of thinking about hiring people who have actually learned a bit about operations and supply chain to manage our operations and supply chain because traditionally people kind of fall into the career. Um, if that's anyone here that you've fallen into it and you wish that you uh, had a bit more knowledge, well, 
The University of Auckland has, has things for you to offer. We also have PhDs if you really want to dive deeply into things. Um, so, yeah, so that's my little plug. Um, I guess I am in a business school, you know, so I have to do the selling part of it as well as just the talking part of it. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, so that's, that's my talk. Thank you very much, Tava. That was really interesting and so much for us to be thinking about. Um, so now we'll move on to the audience Q&A. So here's our first question. Um, thank you for the talk. Um, do you think with, um, well, you sort of mentioned it briefly about uh, geopolitics and uh, deglobalization. Do you think that's going to play a major role in the next decade uh, on, uh, on our supply chain? Yeah, so that's a good question on whether there'll be deglobalization. There's certainly been a lot of conversations about moving production closer to consumption. And that's, you know, both from a uh, resilience standpoint, but also, of course, from a carbon emission standpoint. Um, so it's definitely happening in the US. We're seeing less of it in Europe, to some extent more in the US, but less of it in New Zealand, and a lot of that just comes down to cost, right? So it's very hard for us to make things as efficiently as offshore, and people, consumers are not, at this point, willing to pay more for something that's made locally, by and large. There are obvious exceptions to that, right? So, so I think in terms of deglobalization, I don't really see us untangling our supply chains too much. I think we'll stay with these supply chains where, you know, you have buttons made in one country and thread and, you know, cotton in another country and all gets sewn together in a third country in our clothing supply chains. Um, shipping is remarkably efficient when it comes to emissions, so it's not as bad as it sounds. Um, but what we are going to see is a lot more supply chain visibility, and that's a good thing. So data is here. Companies are realizing they have to have the data. Uh, so I think that will give the visibility. So I'd, I'm not sure we'll see deglobalization in terms of our supply chains at least, but I think we'll see more visibility, more conscious decisions, a bit more awareness of the trade-offs in terms of, okay, I'm going there, that's low cost, but I have actually given myself a fairly big risk because it's in some particular particular region. In terms of, you you did ask uh, about shipping capacity. There's huge numbers of ships being built at the moment. So we are going to have plenty of capacity in, I don't know, five years or so. Um, so this, you know, the market does eventually respond. So we've been, shipping rates have been really high. They're coming down now. There is more capacity coming online. Um, that's going to shake itself out. Because that's the thing with supply chains is eventually they do just shake themselves out. They can, they can figure it out eventually. It's just... We had these lumps and bumps that caused these shortages and inconvenience at the time. Hi. Firstly, thank you very much for that entertaining and informative talk. I'm curious, given your work in the area and your familiarity with it and the fragility, I guess, of supply chains, has that changed how you, for example, purchase day to day, just knowing the behind the scenes fragility? Like, have you, not to pry, but do you stockpile certain items for fear of war? Coffee, perhaps, or other <laughs> items? Um, no, but I did stockpile bef at the beginning of this year when we could see, and in fact, I sent a little thing out on Twitter and I told people other people to stockpile too. At the beginning of this year, when we could see that supermarkets were going to be short on staff, 
and the the logistics was going to be short on staff when the when the wave when the Omicron hit, hit wave hit first, which I think was like April, and in February it made a lot of sense to stock up while there was actually plenty of capacity because you could pull those products through the, you know, earlier in the supply chain. So, so for anything, not so much for things made offshore, but for anything made locally, if you, if you buy meat then and freeze it, then you're not going to be buying it when the peak of the wave was there, which means that the people who really needed it would be able to buy it. So I did, you know, that's, that's one thing that I did do was, was try and anticipate that wave because um, it was clear that there were going to be stockouts when you don't have the people to work the shelves and the trucks and things. And yet there were people, it's, you know, it's obviously timing it to so make sure there's time to refill. Um, but that's about the only thing. I, I you know, I, I haven't done other, other changes in, in my buying. Yeah. Thank you. That, that was fantastic and a bit scary. Um, <laughs> I work in public health and we're an essential service supplying needles and syringes to people who inject drugs. So it's a really critical harm reduction service. And during the pandemic, you know, we had a lot of problems with supply. How do you have an input into this? You acknowledged it, but I'd really like to hear a little bit more about that. Um, so you're asking about uh, what do we do in terms of medical supplies and shortages and should the borders close? So we do have the medical reserve um, pandemic stocks, in theory, uh, for emergencies. So we do have big warehouses full of medical supplies, um, you know, gowns, gloves, syringes, uh, not everything you'd need, um, that, that are sitting there in case of national emergency. And one thing that the pandemic proved, and, and basically all developed nations have, have such stocks, it's, it's, it's uh, recommended by the UN. Um, and one thing the pandemic proved is that we could do a much better job in terms of managing those pandemic stocks, those medical reserves, thinking about what needs to be in there, um, thinking about sort of the range of, of reasons we might pull down uh, from them. And one of the issues with them has always been um, expiration. So particularly, I think Canada had some very dramatic number of expired things sitting in their, in their medical reserve. It's not an easy, it's not an easy um, issue, but uh, it is, I think it is worth <laughs> making sure that we are investing in those medical reserves. And, uh, you know, should the borders shut, and again, you know, I'm not predicting it, you know, I think we could probably come up with some sort of reasonable length of time that maybe we could plan for. Um, and if the time is long enough, you might have time to actually start thinking about could we actually make... I mean, syringes, you know, the plastic of them, it wouldn't be that hard to, to set up, you know, in, in a month, two months, you know, the injection moulding to actually, to actually make those syringes. So, you know, let, let's have that plan, let's have that conversation, but it, it's not us having that conversation, it's the Ministry of Health that that's manages those, those medical reserves, the Ministry of Health, and some of that will be proprietary. They won't want to share all this with the, with the public, and that's fine. But, yeah, hopefully they are actually getting better at, at, at making those plans. What are some, other than medical supplies, what are some other things which you think are critical and New Zealand could run out of if borders are shut? I mentioned fuel, right? Oh, so right. fuel yeah. is going to be a big one pretty quickly um, because we do have a lot of vehicles that need to do things. Uh, 
The, the, I mean, I don't have a very good answer for you because I haven't looked at it and I'm not sure many people have looked at it. And it could be something as small as a tiny little piece that goes into this critical good that we use uh, and nobody actually knows that there's this tiny little piece that everybody is relying on and, oh, we don't actually have another supply. So, you know, rare earths that go into our manufacturing, you know, semiconductors, not that we manufacture many here. There are some, actually. I've actually seen some being produced, but in general we don't. Um, and, yeah, so, so those are a challenge. So, but on the top of my head, I'm not going to come up with a whole good list of, you know, what would we need? I'm sure anyone in the audience is actually as good as me at thinking through what are the supplies that, that are really critical versus the supplies that are not. So one good news for the nation also is we wouldn't run out of food. We have plenty of food, right? It just may not be of the variety that we're used to and the choices, but you know, we, we export large amounts of food, so, so we're not gonna be short of food. Great, and we have one more question here. We'll make this the last question. So short of waiting five years for the new ships to be built, um, when is the shipping crisis going to um, work itself out, please? Well, it's working itself out now. It's just taking a while, and it sort of depends on... So, you know, China is, again, is still pursuing zero COVID, which means that there are port shutdowns that happen. There are some, you know, transport shutdowns, manufacturing shutdowns. So while that's happening, we're still going to get these lumps and bumps in our supply chains that are, that are going to cause issues. So, I mean, I can't tell you when the pandemic's going to be over, but it's not over yet. Um, so, yeah, probably, I mean, it, it is in the order of years to get back to normal, if you want to call it that, in terms of the cheapness of transport, uh, the availability of capacity. Great. Thank you very much. Well, thank you so much, Professor Olson. That was really interesting. And thank you all to everyone um, for coming along this year for Raising the Bar 2022. So thank you again. <laughs> <laughs>